Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneer's Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. <laughs> what makes a great social entrepreneur or impact investor? How can leaders bring together the best qualities of being human and doing right by society and the planet with a sharp business sense and a nose for making money where it matters? Our podcast host has spent most of his working life grappling with these apparent contradictions that define the world of business for good. As a CEO, chair, investment advisor and mentor across charities, corporates, investors and so-called impact businesses. For the past 20 years, he's been signing off his emails and blogs in a way that reflects this same blend of apparently conflicting values. It's also the title of his new Pioneers Post podcast, interviewing exceptional people doing great work in social business and impact investment. Welcome to Peace, Love and Profit with Liam Black. Uh, so hello again, everyone. It's uh, Liam here. Uh, and for this um, uh, podcast, I'm joined by Henry Jones. Uh, who's the CEO of the Big White Wall. So full transparency, I'm the chairman of the Big White Wall. Um, uh, uh, and so I thought it'd be really interesting to speak to someone who's running a digital business in the middle of a pandemic and what he's learning about that and what he's also learning um, as a leader um, uh, about himself personally. Um, Henry joined the company in January last year in 2019, and before that, he'd had a wildly successful career in the SaaS world. Uh, for those of you who don't know what SaaS means, it stands for Software as a Service. And he was part of a team that grew a business called uh, Akinex into a, a, a multi-million-dollar um, global business, uh, which was uh, sold to Oracle. Um, and then he came to work for us, a much smaller impact business in a completely different um, uh, sector um, and market, which I'll be asking um, him about as well. So Henry, welcome. Thank you. Um, uh, thanks for giving us some time, because I, I, I do know how busy you are um, <laughs> at the moment with uh, what's going on. So uh, thanks for allowing me to, to break into your time. So for those of people listening who don't know what the big white wall is, could you just tell us what it is, the business model, how it works, the impact it has? Yeah, so um, the Big White Wall is a peer-to-peer -peer platform that is 24 hours a day, moderated by clinicians uh, for people with uh, anxiety and depression. It's anonymous, so people can go on and really share their thoughts and feelings in a, in a, in a very safe place and get help for themselves and, get, and give help to others uh, as part of the community. Okay, and who's on there? It's quite a diverse group of people that come on, isn't it? Yeah. We now have in the region of about 150 organisations that commission us. Uh, they range from NHS trusts and CCGs to local authorities to government to uh, MOD, uh, veterans. We have a very significant number of universities and colleges on it. Uh, and we also have uh, a number of uh, enlightened private organisations. Yeah, so, so the way it works is that, you know, I'm a student or I'm a, a, a member of the British Army or a, a resident of Canada or, and I can come on at any time of the day or night. So yes. just, could you just describe what that member experience is like? Yeah, probably a, a good way of sort of describing how it's used is if you're a student at a university, uh, maybe you've just arrived, you're in your first couple of weeks, you're starting to feel anxious and depressed. Uh, you're looking into your social media and you've 
you know, it's clear that all everyone else in the world is having a wonderful time at wonderful different parties and, <laughs> and university is thriving and, and you're feeling, you know, worried, anxious, maybe alone. Uh, you can then uh, access the platform free to use, be anonymous so no one knows who you are and you can sign up to the community. And and really there are sort of three levels of the community. There, there is the, the what we call the community itself, really to get involved in uh, chat rooms and talkabouts with other people like you. There is also uh, what we call resources and courses and, and resources maybe, uh, you know, taking part in an assessment to really get a maybe a more clear view of your, your mental state. And, uh, or you can take part in courses that are guided by clinicians or self-guided courses. Uh, Two thirds of the people who use the platform come on in the middle of the night or out of hours. So it's available the whole time. The, you know, in, in any one month, we see about twenty to 40,000 people in the community. So there are always people there to help you. And then, you know, the, the other part of the aspect is, is what we call the war guides, which are the professional uh, mental health professionals who are, we have a team based in New Zealand, UK and Canada. And their job is to uh, have eyes on the platform uh, and make sure it is safe, make sure that it is positive, uh, help out individuals. Mm. Uh, one of the um, sort of pieces of data that comes to the board that I'm always interested in is the numbers of people on the platform who t- are talking about their mental health for the first time, that it's a place because of the anonymity, they're willing to to open up. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah. You know, part of the point of the platform being anonymous is you can go and talk and be honest and be open and feel really safe and not worry about you know, people knowing who you are or what you're doing. But one of the key uh, mental health gains that we see is people saying, I'm more willing to go and talk to other people about my problem now. I think we, we talk about a sense of relief of going to a safe place, being able to talk about it, that probably encourages and does encourage the ongoing exploration and, and if necessary, ability to talk to others and, and get further help if needed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you've been with the company for just over a year and the, the company's been doing really well and develop, developing its platform and, uh, and growing the number of organizations that we work with and then the number of people we're able to help. And then COVID-19 came along in your, in your first CEO role. So just tell us what's it like running a global tech business at a time when everything has been thrown up in the air? It's interesting because, you know, we are obviously very lucky uh, as a business that uh, COVID-19 has been good for us. Um, It's probably sped up decision-making processes. You know, it's pushed technology engagement forward by about 10 years uh, in terms of people willing to use technology for health tech, et cetera. So so I think, you know, one, I, I feel that, you know, I'm not sitting here as a CEO worried about how we're going to survive, how we're going to pay salaries. I'm actually sort of facing a, a different set of challenges um, where we are seeing a rapid uh, a period of growth uh, and demand. So we, we're really seeing that. And, and actually, that is that is something that I have experienced in other businesses uh, where we've seen sort of supercharged growth. Um, I had a, a CEO once tell me that, you know, a high growth business or a period going through supercharged growth is a bit like uh, running an accident and emergency department. 
And, you know, in those times, you have to focus on what really matters, i.e. saving lives and filing can wait for another day. Um, and, and I think that's where we are now. I think also, you know, the one thing that we are experiencing um, that uh, is particularly relevant in growth times, but also now because of being remote, which is very different, is this need to trust your team. Um, you need to be able to, uh, in this period of demand, in this period of people working remotely, you need to trust your team. And if you can't trust them, they shouldn't be your team. You know, over the last year, luckily, we were rebuilding the team. And so we have a team that I have a high level of trust in and, and have brought on myself. So I feel very confident with that. Yeah, and one of the, someone, uh, Susan Actimel, who runs Homes for Good in Glasgow, uh, which is another impact business and, and also part of the Ivy UK portfolio. I was talking to her a couple of weeks ago, and she was saying that um, it's come up with a great phrase, which was, whatever you were like before, you're more so now. And it, it strikes me that uh, some of the leaders I see in impact business, and I, and I would definitely include you in this, Henry, is that good ones are even better now. The kind of the crisis has brought, they've stepped up and, and it's drawn out of them the sort of authentic leadership that I think is required. But I also see other leaders in businesses close to me as well as those that are far away, where it's actually um, catching them out and, and, and they are, it's showing them not to be the sort of leaders that are required in this kind of um, this kind of emergency. Just to go back to the, the 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 business and the change in business. Uh, you know, I was involved. You know, uh, supporting you uh, when you were negotiating the, um, the 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 partnership that we have now with uh, the Canadian government to make the platform available to everyone in Canada, and that happened in such a short period of time, a matter of days. Whereas my experience of negotiating with the public sector and governments is it can it could take it can sometimes take literally years to do that. Do you think that that change in approach that we want something, um, you've got what we want, let's make this happen really quickly and jump over lots of the sort of bureaucracy and things that often get in the way? Do you think that's going to stick around? Do you think that will change? And that once, please God we're out of this emergency, that that our relationship with public sector, private sector will have changed in that regard? I mean, I think, unfortunately, bureaucracy will always exist in government. And I think probably finding a cure for that is harder than finding a cure for, <laughs> for the virus. Um, so I think it is there and we still see it um, and probably don't want to talk too much about that, yeah. particularly in some of the examples we've seen here. But I think, you know, a crisis does force people to behave differently. And so I think that, you know, the adoption of technology and the use of technology. So we've just signed for another province in Canada and we are for the first digital mental health provider to be providing a service in that province, province wide. And I think that opens the opportunity for many others to step in and, and that way it change. I think the bureaucracy will probably come back, unfortunately. But I think by the time this crisis is done, the level of adoption and engagement will have moved on so far that it that it can't be um pulled back and i liken this to and at a slight level when i was at axiom and we were providing alternative to law, law firms as legal services uh you know we were we after the global financial crisis businesses were forced into looking at different ways to handle legal risk which were much more cost effective in using technology 
and they rapidly, we saw a huge pickup in growth, very similar to this now, a huge pickup in growth, huge demand. And then once the global financial crisis subsided, they didn't go back. You know, they tried something different. So they may have stepped back a bit, but they didn't go back to how it was before. And when that comes to sort of digital mental health support, I'm sure there will be, you know, people will start using, you know, physical presence sort of on-site services more again because they can. But I don't think that they will dial back to the sort of, I think that the adoption of technology and digital support will maintain at a much higher level than it was before. Yeah. Unfortunately, the bureaucracy of government, I, 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 I think that will come back. <laughs> I yeah. wish it wouldn't, but I'm sure it will. Yeah, as you say, that's that is probably incurable as a sort of yeah. systemic, a systemic, um, a systemic issue. Um, is it is it too early in the day for you to have started thinking about how the shape of the business will change? We're, we're now, you know, scattered across the UK and in Canada. Are, are there ways of working that we've discovered during this crisis that we will keep? Do you see us going back to? being centred around two buildings in Toronto and London. How, how do you think, think see things playing out? Was it a bit too early for that? I, I think it's a bit early. And, and I know it's a conversation that you want to have. I think it is a bit early. Yeah. I think there is an interim stage, which I think actually some of the companies have done, which says, you know, we'll probably decide for the next three to six months what the shape of this looks like. So we may just say, you know, the office will stay closed or some variant of that. So I think there is the, the sort of interim what happens. And then I think what we need to see what happens uh, with, with, with the virus and what happens with the business. I, I think we have learned some things. So it's really interesting. I think, one, we can operate like this. Uh, two, I think those, you know, a big proportion of our team were already remote. And for them, this has been a really positive experience because everyone's remote. So the business has had to work harder to communicate and to, you know, create, a culture and stuff like that and that has been beneficial to them there is a real challenge around missing the the softer aspects that really make a company great so you know the laughter the people shared and stuff like that and you know we've we've worked really hard to to try to keep people connected and you know there are teams parts of the teams use slack and we've created these huddles that have that have focused on on fun and laughter and silliness, not on further enrichment. Uh, and we, yeah, and I, th- I think it's I think it's important that the listeners know that I won the bingo um, at yeah. the, uh, the last huddle. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No. It. I mean, you know, I think, and I think that is a challenge. And I know personally that. But the thing that I have struggled with most is that, you know, that that laughter in the office or that walk to have lunch and that chat and that personal stuff. And I think that. You know, I always think I'm quite good at reading people, but now I'm not seeing them. So I don't really get a feel. So how are they really doing and how are they feeling and stuff like that? So I think there are some really good things we've learned. And I think there are some challenges. We're still trying to work out how we deal with this without the office environment. So, yeah, yeah I, don't think we'll, I don't think we'll go back to how it was. I certainly, you know, look forward to not going into London four days a week or five days a week. Uh, but let's... But I, it will be somewhere in between, in my mind. Yeah, one of the things that's been been on my mind, um, sort of looking at our business and other businesses that, I, that I'm involved with in different ways, 
uh, and you know this got, so we're recruiting people that we that we don't meet you know mm. physically um and you know that that's likely to accelerate over the next few months um uh, with us and i wonder the extent to which if there is if there has to be in the future more working from home whether or not companies that have a strong purpose will have something of a sort of uh, competitive advantage really because it is difficult to work from home if you don't have you know if you know i'm also lucky i've got a nice garden i've got an office at the bottom of the bottom of it and so on but for people that don't have that but who do still have to do more working from home than maybe they would like to in the future Hmm. i just wonder whether those companies that have a strong purpose and are making a real difference in the world that that would be more of an incentive for people to join companies like us because it gives the work that they do uh, a purpose and a, and a focus and a, and a, and a, and a worth. I, I just think having a purpose full stop is one of the biggest advantages I had. You know, we're looking for a senior exec role and, and, and put it bluntly, the, the recruiter turned around and says, it'll probably save you 20% on your salary because of the purpose. Um, yeah, they're putting, uh, putting a price on it. That's yeah, putting it a price. I mean, that's exactly, was a few days ago, exactly said that. And I, I've never thought about it quite like that. But, you know, the reality is, is, and I, I sat in a, I sat in a workshop that was, you know, one of these thought leadership workshops, and it was all about how you build purpose into your business. And, you know, some of it felt very artificial for me. The, the one thing I felt as I walked out of the meeting was I don't need to worry about that because yeah. we have a clear purpose. I think it's a huge advantage whether you're recruiting people to work in an office. It's definitely uh, an advantage if you're recruiting a mer- uh, remotely because people want to be involved. And I think, you know, I think this whole pandemic has probably driven that up even more people are evaluating what they're doing in life in a in a world where people are more remote you know having a purpose brings people together so yes i I think absolutely yeah and so uh, moving on henry to uh what you've learned about yourself um during this these old strange times that we're in yeah i you know so I've done a lot of remote working, and uh, you know, my last job, uh, when I wasn't traveling, I tended to work from home, so I was at home a lot, very used to working in this sort of environment. Um, and so when this started, I thought, oh, well, this is sort of business as usual. Um, but I haven't found it as easy as I thought I would. I think I probably found it easier than many, but I haven't found it. And And it goes back to that, you know, I've always, you know, worked remotely, but, you know, even, you know, if it was one day a week or, you know, going, going on a business trip every two weeks or going up to the office, it's always been interspersed with meeting people and uh, having, being able to have idle chit chat, have a laugh, talk about personal stuff, you know, interluded. And, and I miss that. I miss that a lot. I've I've also learned, as I've already mentioned, that you know, I do feel very lucky, and that luck has actually, you know, made me feel, rightly or wrongly, and for others to judge, is you know, makes me feel guilty, uh, and and whether I should or shouldn't is by the point, but it does, and it's and it's some it's an emotion that isn't always a good emotion, and it does mean that you know you have to think about how you talk about things or the or the way you do it. Yeah, th- thanks, Henry. I think that you know your 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 
to what you were talking there about the the guilt. I think that one I've described, you know, this COVID nineteen as a sort of truth serum, which everyone is, you know, compulsorily has to take, and it will reveal us as individuals as to who we really are and and what is genuinely important to us, but also as a society, and it's clearly shown how unequal we are because the the pain uh, of this um, uh, of this pandemic is not evenly distributed. And um, I also feel I also feel um, some of that guilt, but try and turn it into a use it as a fuel then to say, well, okay, how how can I do whatever my little bit to to reduce that inequality and use the resources that I've got? And and I definitely see my you know role at, at the big white wall, which 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 I love um, as part of that. That you know we are. Um, addressing because of the platform that we have some of those health inequalities and and being involved in a company where there's a really explicit value of you know democratic access that we want to be accessible to all whether you're a an executive or you're uh, you know a single parent on a housing estate in Lewisham or Toronto um, that you can have access as an equal um, onto this platform so I think for me trying to use that that guilt or that sense of uh, uh, turn that into a, a responsibility to try and do my bit to to spread out that uh, equality a bit more um henry jones uh, ceo of big white wolf thank you very much indeed thank you we hope you enjoyed this episode of peace love and profit with liam black Tune in to Pioneers Post podcasts again via our website, SoundCloud, Apple, or however you like to listen to your podcasts. You can find hundreds more podcasts and videos and thousands of stories supporting business for social good from around the globe at pioneerspost.com. And if you'd like to support our social enterprise journalism, we'd love you to sign up for a subscription at pioneerspost.com slash subscribe.